Yeah. Right. Oh, you guys can't hear it because there's no. <laughs> there it is. It's useful if I don't mute the audio. I turned it on, but I just was like, wait a minute. The audio volume is like all the way down at the bottom of the scale because it's not doing in, anything. Chris, in, in space, no one can hear you beat. <laughs> Thanks. I hate it. But. <laughs> but they can see the laser pulses. Yeah, um, but anyways, welcome to Belt It Louder for the people in the back. For those of you joining us while Chris talks through his, his technical directing uh, responsibilities, uh, I'm Bushido Squirrel, that's Chris Roth, over to my, I guess it would be screen right, and then above us both is, uh, excuse me, Logan Rapp. Uh, we're going to be covering The Expanse episodes three and four. Uh, it's going to be uh, pretty action-packed. There's some fun shit blowing up in space. There's some Mormons in space, uh, slightly less interesting than Jews in space, but also still pretty good. Uh, there's class warfare on many, many levels. There's a bunch of imperialism and uh, some interplanet drama as the uh, attempt to build a bigger, badder, more stealthy space force uh, comes to a head between these three ra- these three con- uh, conflicting factions. Sorry, I'm having some trouble with my words today. I got the <laughs> super advanced space vaccine today myself for COVID, so... Uh, that's pretty cool, uh, and I'm excited about that, but also my arm hurts a lot. Uh, but I'm going to go around the horn real quick, and uh, first, Logan, how are you doing tonight? Uh, I'm doing well. I am definitely happy that we are at the weekend. It has been a bit of a stressful week. Yeah, yeah. But just I'm remember that, you know, weeks and, and weekdays are vestigial time management that, you know, only apply to Earth, so... And matter even less in a pandemic. Exactly. And Chris, how are you doing? I'm doing all right. You know, uh, it, it's uh, time is a flat circle and does not have that much meaning. It's it was fascinating. I I actually got to uh, have a little bit of a birthday present from NASA last last week, which was nice. Uh, they decided to land that rover uh, for me, which was super that cool. Was fun. Yeah. Uh, and as you know, as a representative of the Mars uh, Congressional Republic, I got to say, you know, that that was the moment when uh, we proved that this shit is repeatable and that we can keep doing it as many fucking times as we want. So, you know, so begins the conquest of the uh, barren planet and uh, yeah. the uh, terraforming. The in case, in case, yeah, in case you all missed it, uh, the Perseverance rover landed on Mars in a very complicated maneuver that involved shooting all the way over to Mars and then dropping out of the atmosphere with like a big parachute and a heat shield and then slowing down even more using a sky crane with its own rocket system, filming the entire thing and then beaming it back to Earth. So we weren't able to watch it live, but the video was up online like the next day and you're able to watch the control center with some very, very cool simulations of what was going on and like second by second uh, measurements of the altitude and the speed and all in all, like uh, pretty interesting, pretty cool stuff. And Perseverance is going to be there drilling into some bedrock, trying to look for signs of uh, ancient water and signs of life in the hopes that, I don't know, Elon Musk can uh, flee there. And Chris, since you have the Elon Musk hookup, we're we're all <laughs> expecting tickets. Well, okay. So honestly, this was, this was a really cool mission because um, it's basically, it was a repeat mission in terms of the landing technology compared to what they had done on the Curiosity rover. Um, they just basically took this from what, like from a, a, an outsider perspective, it looks pretty much like it was the same technology. They just added a shitload of cameras, which is mm-hmm. always a good thing for uh, the social media generation. Um, 
And uh, they also added a, an extra super cool payload, which I'm thrilled to see what they're going to do with it. That little helicopter, man. Like, oh, yeah. how cool is that? They're going to have a helicopter on Mars. Like, honestly, that to me, because the, the Martian atmosphere is so thin that, you know, the the parachute really doesn't do that much to slow it down. I mean, it does do a lot to slow it down, but like not nearly as much as what you would get in the, in the earth atmosphere. And that's also part of why, like if you look at the footage, there's not like the jets of flame coming out of the, the little landing pod, the, the drop ship as it were. Um, because there's really just, there's no atmosphere to keep the compression cone of the, 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 uh, basically almost plasma coming out of the back end of those, of those thrusters. Mm. Um, plus there, there's also just like, they're they're not super there's not like an oxidizer being included they're hypergolic engines they only need one propellant and it just ignites itself so like there isn't like an extra whole bunch of shit going on it's not like on on earth where there's oxygen in the atmosphere for any residual extra bits of fuel to use to light on fire so if you did the same thing with like a lander here on earth it would look very different um but of course you know that's the challenge of this stuff is doing it someplace else because you 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 can't test it until you're there and you can't recreate an example of hey what's the martian atmosphere like and let's drop something into it going a few hundred miles an hour and see what happens like it doesn't work that way <laughs> so you're saying after we all move to mars we're going to have to send rovers back to to earth that's what <laughs> no, i'm here <laughs> that's that that you didn't hear me at all <laughs> But so, so we did want to. We had an issue we wanted to touch on, actually, because uh, like a lot of folks who grew up in the the millennial generation, or as I like to call us, the millenarian generation, because you know what the world's ending. Oh, fair, Millerites. <laughs> That's a deep cut for anybody. Look it up. Hi, very. I, I tell a lot of thinkers, and and you know, and by that I mean people think they're dumb, but. <laughs> What we did want to talk about, because as millennials, we all grew up with Joss Whedon. And he was kind of like, for a lot of people in their teenage years, the first introduction to sort of pop culture feminism, vis-a-vis Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, vis-a-vis Serenity a little bit later on. But he sort of was like the good sci-fi. Like, he was the the sci-fi dude who told strong women's stories. And it kind of turns out that that was a load of bullshit. So, Logan, I know you wanted to talk about this, so I'm going to pass it over to you. Yeah, I want to talk about Joss Whedon. Uh, so for those who don't know, and I don't know how you don't at this point, but, you know, the creator of the Buffy TV series, Angel and Firefly, uh, it's now coming out more and more and more that uh, he was an abusive, cruel man who abused his staff, uh, abused his cast, and cultivated a deeply toxic working environment. And I'm going to try and keep this tight because we can make a whole other podcast about this, just this yeah. topic alone when it comes to, you know, toxic work environments and Hollywood film sets. But when I brought it up to Bushido and Chris, I had said that I just wouldn't feel right having a show that investigates class and exploitation in a fictional realm without talking about the stuff that's happening in real life, especially with us being in Los Angeles, you know, not to quote Zach De La Rocha, but it's right outside our door. And the thing that I can't get over Michelle Trachtenberg saying that the Buffy TV series had a rule that Joss was not allowed in a room alone with her again. Keyword being again. 
And I'd she, like was, to she was she was the 16. youngest of the cast members. That's right. She yeah. was 16 when she started on the show. So, but the other thing that I'm struck by is what I can only call the silence of guilty men who obviously witnessed these abuses. And even now there's silence. Glenn Mazzara, he's a, a prominent writer. More importantly, he's big in the WGA. He does a lot of uh, inclusivity work in the WGA. Uh, he tweeted a question that I just can't get out of my head. And he basically structured it as, you know, Joss had a lot of men in that writer's room. Fellas, nobody saw anything. And even now, you know, there's still silence from many of those men who worked on those shows. Now, what does this have to do with The Expanse? Number one, Firefly was a Whedon show, and quite a bit of its DNA is in The Expanse, for sure. Yeah. But number two, The Expanse had its own moment with abuse in the workplace. Cass Anvar, who played Alex Kamal in the show, himself was accused of sexual harassment and even assault at conventions. There wow. is a prevailing belief that he assaulted fans uh, yeah. during the conventions. And if, and if he didn't assault them, there's a lot of um, pretty good uh, evidence that he was uh, fairly, like, harassing and predatory towards fans and used his position on the show uh, to try and make passes at women where it probably wasn't appropriate. There's a lot of smoke there for there to not be fire. Yeah. And and, and here's here's the difference when, when I see what's happening, you know, in the verse and what happened with The Expanse. Ty and Daniel, the authors who were also producers on the show, they caught wind. They immediately took it to the studio. The studio immediately announced an investigation. They also announced an investigation. They immediately relayed a message from Dominique Tipper, who plays Naomi and isn't on social mm -hmm. media anymore. Uh, and then they were immediately backed up by Stephen Strait, who plays Holden, and mm -hmm. Wes Chatham, who plays Amos. And Wes is very, very particular about safety. That uh, apparently that's a real big sticking point for him, which good for him. And it's a night and day comparison to these reactions. They didn't circle the wagons to protect their boy. They immediately thanked the victims for coming forward. And more importantly, they didn't abuse that trust. And now Cass Anvar is donezo, no longer on the show. Almost yep. immediately they did their fast investigation. And yes, you do have to investigate. And sometimes that takes time. They figured it out. They knew there was way too much smoke for there to not be any fire. And they just went, you know what? Fuck this. We're not doing this anymore. Yeah. And a lot of it also, I think, um, from, from what I've uh, understood, it, it had to do with the cast's reaction and their desire to distance themselves from a cast member who was crossing all of their boundaries, too, and their desire to no longer work with him. Mm -hmm. And... And the thing is, is abuse in TV and... In, uh, abuse in TV and film workplaces... It didn't start with Weinstein. It won't end with Weinstein. And it's pervasive, and it takes good people to recognize their power and their responsibilities in this situation, in these situations. And the good thing to come out of this is the Expanse cast and producers exercised that power, and they didn't hesitate to take action. And I want every other studio to take note of that. With swift, responsible action, the show, their product, didn't suffer. They weren't mired in a months-long PR snafu. Careers, aside from the one person who did the thing, careers were not ruined over this. 
And if anything, I have even more respect for the team behind the series, and I'm even happier to be discussing it on this podcast. Would that every show operate with that level of baseline moral clarity? It's the lowest fucking bars, and the one thing we can at least say about The Expanse is that they cleared it. Yeah. Well, and it's it's interesting with Whedon, too, because when you look back at a lot of his work— and and I think a lot of this is also a matter of like time. Like we wouldn't, you know, be where we are in the pop culture conversation if it hadn't been what what Wheaton Wheaton kind of did. But when you look at uh, Doctor Horrible Sing Along Blog, a wildly popular micro show that he put out, that when you go back and look at it now, is a whole strain of toxic masculinity in and of itself, and like fails the basic like satire irony test. Like, is it actually lampooning? these toxic male behaviors or is it really a pain to them and saying oh this is how this is valid feelings for someone to have and a way for them to um explore and and live out those feelings and it feels like with whedon a lot of this was just willfully ignored because we know his relationship with his wife was also quite fraught and that he had been cheating on her for years before he then dumped her for a younger woman and it came out in a a terrible story i want to say five or six years ago, and it, it looked like his career would be over then, and then he was brought back in to uh, rescue the Justice League, um, which, you know, no one can rescue the Justice League, in my opinion, but this is something where his behavior time and again has sort of cropped up on the radar and then gone away, and then his career just kind of gets revived because he's got the power. His father was a very, very famous television show writer. I forget which sitcom he wrote back in the day. It was like uh, Gilligan's Island or something like that, right? Huh. Like. But he's, he comes from a TV show family, so yeah. he's got the connections and he's got the pedigree, and he's not the worst writer in the world for a certain kind of style, but he's gotten a lot more uh, rope to hang himself with than most people would or should. And so it's really good to see in this show that like they didn't stop at the fact that like this is a wildly popular show. They didn't decide, oh, hey, we only have two more seasons left or one more season left after the fifth season. We're going to go ahead and keep Cass around and just sort of like get through it, that they acted very quickly. They acted very appropriately. And it's something we're seeing more and more, but also there are certain limits to it. We're still in the midst of that conversation. Where that's going to go is really largely going to depend on who we as the audience are, because we keep seeing these backlashes to quote social justice movements that seem to inhibit our ability to move forward and to push the ball forward. And I hope that when people with some fame speak up and act up, that actually leads to changes. Um, and leads to a way that we can actually address these these sort of things because there is a power imbalance when you're a famous actor. And we see that repeated time and time and time again. And it tends to you know center around people who are already known to be problems. So you know, thank you very much for like bringing this out. Chris, did you have anything you wanted to add? I know me and Logan no. have spoken a bunch here. It, it, you, you, you were hitting all the points. Like yeah. this was this was one of those things that when I first heard about it, it made me feel really gross. Uh, continuing to be a fan of the show because it's just like how you know how are they going to keep this guy around and then you know going into the the last season i was like okay you know we'll see what ends up happening and then at the end of it as soon as as soon as the the radio call was not being responded to i was just like oh shit they handled it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> yeah they did have to do they did not too big of a spoiler um if you if you're not caught up but they did have to do some major rewrites between the book and the show for season five in order to to rectify this, um, which, you know, I, I think for the ways they could do it, um, they did it well. But there was one thing before we did move on that I wanted to, to kind of flag here is, as you mentioned, uh, Logan, 
uh, a lot of the the allegations and the things that Cass did happened at conventions. And like, yep. you know, I worked at Screen Junkies when Andy Signore was there. One of the places he would predicate on people was at conventions because it's a very heady atmosphere. There are a lot of people who are there in the industry who are there every year. But there are a lot of people who only go to like Comic-Con like once in their life because you have to travel all the way to San Diego. You have to take a week out of your life. You have to spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on the tickets. You have to spend hundreds, if not thousands of dollars on lodging because all the prices in San Diego shoot way up. Like when the Chargers threatened to leave San Diego, the city of San Diego was like, you know what? I guess you can do that. When Comic-Con threatened to leave San Diego, they, they shit the fuck out because that is how <laughs> they go into the black every year. If Comic-Con, if San Diego Comic-Con doesn't happen, the city of San Diego goes broke. Like that is the economic engine of San Diego because the rest of it's a lot of shipping and a lot of trade and stuff that like pays a steady income but doesn't give them that like huge burst of like disposable income injected directly into the city's veins. And so Andy would use those opportunities to predicate on people who were sort of out of their element, who were going to a lot of parties, who were there on a vacation. And we see that happening again. I think we do need to, you know, at some point confront what the conventions have become. Because when I was a little kid, I would go to San Diego Comic-Con, like 95, 96, when San Diego Comic-Con was tiny. It wasn't at the full convention center. It was at a smaller facility. Tickets were like 50 bucks for the weekend. You could literally meet people. Like I, I met uh, Peter Mayhew, the guy who played Chewbacca, because he was just sitting at a table signing autographs. Like I remember when San Diego Comic-Con was like truly nerdy shit. And now when I got paid to go back there for Screen Junkies and Clever, it is a huge marketing you know, fiasco. It's everyone's there throwing around a lot of money. Uh, it's it's something completely different and it's something very toxic where your ability to participate in the fandom and be part of this culture is really dependent on your ability to spend money and your ability to be privileged and to have that capability. And or you your see ability those to hustle. To <laughs> yes. Yeah. Which, but the, the thing with conventions is, and, and not even just Comic-Con, but, but all conventions, is that, you know, for predators they're a target rich environment and there is nowhere near enough security uh and it's almost impossible to have that security because the only thing that they'll say that they can control is the convention center never mind that in comic-con it's throughout the whole damn gas lamp and yeah. how how do you secure that when you have multiple corporations, multiple small companies, multiple small businesses all having their own events. Agencies are out there. They're all having their own events. How do you have a robust security system? And the answer is you can't. Nope. So I, I don't know what the answer is, but I mean, I when I heard that it was through conventions that Cass was doing this shit, I wasn't surprised. I wasn't surprised at all yep. because that that is, like I said, it's a target rich environment. And and for the foreseeable future, it probably will continue to be so. Yeah. And you see, like, even in some of the I, I don't want to call it innocuous, but the less like escalated behavior, you know, you see a lot of people taking photos without consent. You see especially women who are dressed in cosplay, being sexualized, being approached in ways that like they're not comfortable with. This is really endemic to, to you know, culture, to the culture of the conventions, but it's even more endemic just to the kind of like nerd and fandom culture that we have. And this very alienated 
culture where people speak to each other through their consumption of a pop culture artifact and their inability to relate to each other on a human level. And it can be really weird and really creepy. And, you know, I know people who cosplay and like they basically bring a bodyguard with them. They bring someone to be like, hey, I didn't say you can take my photo. Hey, you're not allowed to touch me. Like you shouldn't have to do that when you're no. trying to participate in something fun and something that you enjoy. And so um, I guess as we round off here, I guess my, my plea to everyone is to get back to the enjoyment of these things for what they are with a critical mind towards how we're doing that and why we're doing that and not believing that like buying every Funko Pop somehow makes you a more valid or worthwhile fan or that there are certain good or better ways to consume material because that's the seed of this toxic culture of believing that you are better or more privileged or somehow um, have more access to the truth of what it is that you're looking at. And that's that's really where things begin to break down. And that's when people like Cass Anbar and Andy Signor can abuse people is because they have that illusion of power around them. And until we tear that down, we're always gonna have these very, very ridiculous pop culture memes running through our society and resulting in, you know, stuff where we live in a society. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Also, fuck Funko Pops. Like, those yeah. things are bullshit. They all look anyway. the same. <laughs> anyway, so let's uh, let's uh, head into uh, the episodes now. So we're gonna we're gonna start off with uh, episode three, uh, which uh, sorry I forgot the name. This one's "Remember the Cant." And so in episode one, the Canterbury was destroyed by entities unknown. Uh, at this point, the crew of uh, the surviving crew of the Canterbury has been taken aboard the uh, MCR and Doniger, the Martian Congressional Republic Navy Doniger, their flagship, i.e. their biggest, baddest, most, like, ridiculous warship. Uh, James Holden has accused the Martians of destroying the Canterbury effectively, setting the fuse to an intrasolar war. And uh, so let's drop in as they are being interrogated by the Martians with some very um, interesting new forms of lie detectors, I'll call it. Yeah, so I, I flagged this clip because I liked the idea of like an actual lie detector test that rather than using a bunch of bullshit pseudoscience, it just like basically looks like it's some kind of like non-addictive meth or something that allows people to focus infinitely better. I believe they, they actually call the drug focus, right? That's yeah. that's what they call it later mm -hmm. on in the series. Um, but it was super cool uh, how they were able to use it to uh, to hold, do this whole interrogation. So let's go ahead and uh, watch that. For those of you listening, they're in an interrogation room and the, the Martian interrogator is entering the room, very ominously putting something on the desk. Uh, he takes a pill out. And there's a close shot of his eyes as something is clearly happening in his brain. <laughs> yeah. Looks like a boba. It looks like a weird boba breath mint thing. Yeah. Doesn't seem to taste too good. Nope, but it hits like a son of a bitch. <laughs> Five fathers, three mothers. The, yeah. Eight parents, one child. Yes. All right. So from, from here, it's, uh, you know, we don't really need to go into the details of what is going but on they with... But this is something we'll explore later is James Holden is not just like a dude and a woman getting it on in no. the biblical sense. He is actually <laughs> the progeny of eight different people who all have their genetic material scrambled together and put into an embryo uh, mm -hmm. for a very specific reason that we'll get into later. But 
this is the sort of technology that we're not capable of that has been talked about, though, with artificial insemination, where you can have embryos that have more than one parent and mother, um, something that other animals in the animal kingdom are able to do, where they're able to have an embryo that has multiple fathers in the genetic material, but something that humans do not do because of just the way that we've evolved. So that's something to flag for later as also, and also, you know, brings us a little bit along the progression of the, the tech tree. Absolutely. So, uh, from here, this, this Logan, you should be the one introducing this next clip because, uh, honestly, I thought that this was a pretty good summation of like what it means to be belters. Oh yeah. This is, uh, it kind of gets into the, uh, the credo of, uh, who belters are at least a credo that, uh, their current leader Anderson Dawes is trying to instill in the workers and of course you know with the uh the destruction of the Canterbury and uh the the workers obviously are irate about this thinking that uh the MCR uh oh did you lose me no we're we're still here oh, okay okay my my video froze uh but... <laughs> But uh, with uh, the workers believing that the uh, the MCR destroyed the Canterbury, they're obviously angry, and uh, Anderson has to remind them of who they are and and what they do. Exactly. So, also, uh, Anderson Dawes is probably one of my favorite characters in the whole series. Just throwing it out there. What's going on, guys? These men refuse to top up our water tanks. We'll die up there without it. So. Mars killed the cats! Yeah! I do love these, like, these absurd you, accents. You. <laughs> you stay there, right there. But now. Give the Martians their water! We all don't know animals. have every right to be angry you should be angry but if we act like animals it only justify their belief that we are give him for him alone the team treat them the way they should treat us You wanted to talk? Yeah. So we should we should set up before we move on. Uh, Logan, set up for us who Anderson Dawes is because he came in there and just very immediately de-escalated a very dicey situation. Uh, so he obviously has to have some power in here. Yeah, I mean he he's almost like the union boss, really, because <laughs> he's. Uh, dealing with a lot of these different factions and it uh, of the OPA and and he really leads the OPA but he's not necessarily like kind of the dominant faction it, it's more of he's kind of their their consensus candidate for lack of a better term it's we can all deal with anderson we don't hate him so that so he can lead us and keep us together and keep us from killing each other and he very much has a, um, not just, a, he doesn't just bring peace, but he also brings them a lot of power. Like he mm -hmm. is, you know, 
more in the vein of like one of the IRA leaders where the IRA yeah. back in the day was not oh, one faction, much. you know, before um, before the Easter Rebellion, the IRA was many different factions. They were all locally um, situated and had to deal with each other and had different competing interests and things that they wanted to do. And the IRA kind of came together as a way to meld these different factions into one. And that was one reason that the British spent so much time trying to sow dissent between these different factions and very much. Uh, in the belt because you're uh, a you're spatially distant from each other, but b they they all have very different concerns. You know, some of these asteroids do mining, some of these asteroids do manufacturing, some of these asteroids uh, do shipping. So the the different factions tend to grow along trade union lines and tend to have mm -hmm. somewhat competing interests where they they could eat each other alive, and they need sort of a controlling hand. And Anderson Dawes does that, but he also does it in a very showy way, and it's a way where you always know that he's got the trump card in the pocket where he always has another play to make and any concession he's making to you is because he wants to be making it like he doesn't want to allow himself to be boxed in or forced to do anything and he exercises that power very very effectively as we're going to continue to see throughout the series where these factions who sometimes are pirates sometimes are above board trade unionists all come together to decide what would be best for all of their people together so and they all end up paying a tithe of some sort to do basically anyone who's doing any kind of business in and out of series, which is the most important trade port in the belt. They all yeah. have to pay their taxes as it were, their unofficial taxes to Anderson Dawes. And we find out later on that not only does he collect those taxes, he's not doing it just for his own personal gain. He's using it. He's reinvesting it into the community and it is, by doing that, that he truly builds up his power base. He's not doing this purely out of a sense of uh, of, of self-importance and greed. He does genuinely seem to give a shit, which is yeah. frankly super refreshing. And you know, I, I got to say, most of most of the protagonists in this entire show do seem to actually give a shit about the stuff that they're doing, with the exception yeah. of a couple of people from uh, my. Uh, my my side here, the the Mars Congressional Republic. There are a lot of completely selfish assholes in the in the MCR, um, and there are a couple of truly selfish assholes over on uh, Earth and Luna. Um, yeah, and also some extraordinarily selfish ones over in the OPA as well. But that's for I don't know that's for later. About Christopher, <laughs> but it's you. it's 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 a, a good compliment to the way that the Earth Corps operate on places like yeah. Ceres, where. They're doing more of the neoliberal sort of like, you know, mm -hmm. redevelopment, like we're bringing these people who are too stupid and too far out in space to care for themselves, what they need. We're going to bring civilization to them, but they'll never bring be able to cops. fully access it. <laughs> and there's also the understanding in the OPA that they're building something brand new, that the OPA is different because of the way that the people out there live and that they've become something different than people who live on Earth and Mars and that they're fundamentally a different type of humanity than the people who live in the gravity wells, as they call them, the well wallas. And I think Anderson Dawes is very interested oh, that in is building why they that. Call them that. Yeah. Holy it, shit! Is... How did I not make that connection until now? What the fuck? What but the Anderson fuck? Anderson Dawes is really—he's really building a new type of politics, and that's something that's very interesting and compelling about his character. And one that ah! takes us to very interesting places because that long-term vision, that idea that we're building for multiple generations in the belt really changes the way that they deal intrafactionally and interfactionally with other people. Um, but I wanted to, to, to uh, turn now real quick 
to uh, some very cool like space stuff that you identified, Chris. Yeah. Um, as far as yeah, yeah. so so we're gonna kick uh, kick back to um, oh my god, why am I forgetting his name? This is terrible. Um, <laughs> Josephus Miller. Josephus Miller. Thank you, Detective Miller, who is still tracing after the uh, the Scopuli and the Anubis, these ships that disappeared with his quarry on them, and so he is just sitting there drinking some uh, hopefully good scotch and looking at some orbital paths with just some really amazing technology coming out of his hand terminal. Oh yeah, no this this is this like as a nerd, this made me go, oh my god, I cannot wait until I have this kind of visualization tool. Um, also, I, I would like to point out that in the previous couple of episodes, uh, whenever he pours himself a drink, they've always made it a point for him to pour it from like a distance, and then you see it do some weird swirly bullshit, which like wouldn't actually happen. Um, but they they kind of skipped that here, and I'm glad that they realized that maybe they shouldn't be doing that. But uh, anyway, here we go. Scopulate movements after leaving series. God, I want this. Also, just chilling with the jazz. <laughs> After the transponder shut off, ships show up on any uh, flight control satellites or. Uh... And so he's he's looking at the ship after it's left series and after it turns off its its tracking capabilities. Yeah. And then simply yeah, asking the computer to do some simple math, because space being a large field, there's you know only so many places you can go with the amount of energy that you've got once you've launched. Yep. It's it's hard for me to believe that this is even possible when you consider how much I argue with my Alexa on a daily fucking basis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, everything that he's doing is all voice control um, and gestures, very much like a minority report slash Alexa future that is uh, both incredible and also terrifying when you think about the 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 larger scale implications but it also like he's now looking at a bunch of surveillance footage that's just available very much in the same vein of like the way that the uh you know the the way that the the ns ncss the national security special whatever it is in environment or uh, enforcement zone that is going to be the los angeles of 2020 uh four and beyond Eight. because of the Olympics. 2028. Yeah. yeah. But it starts happening in like 2024. Um, but the, anyway, the point is that like, when you talk about surveillance and these cameras and stuff, you got to look no further than London uh, as an exemplar of holy shit, the most surveilled city uh, in the world outside of, I think Beijing. Um, and then most of that is because of uh, the Olympics that they had there not too long ago. What was it 2012? Yeah. 2016 i don't yeah. remember i mean and what they're what they're rolling out in tokyo is even even scarier with some of the oh, facial yeah. recognition technology and everything they're doing that's there. your but ticket the, yeah but but the thing i wanted you to talk about a little bit here oh, was yeah. when it comes to flight <laughs> tracking and stuff when it comes to bodies moving in space yeah you know how easy is it for computers to extrapolate that stuff because a lot of it's just it's it's a lot of number crunching it's a lot of vectors it's a lot of just understanding of f equals ma so like is the ability to like you know throw a rock from another rock and then figure out okay where are the other rocks that it could make it to is this possible stuff to do uh largely yeah i mean it's it's so the big thing here is that you got to remember that the, the 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 computer database in this situation presumably has like the information about how much power can this this um ship's 
drive produce? How much fuel can they carry on board? And then they're able to, and like, what's its mass? So it's able to do a whole bunch of calculations uh, to quickly determine where, what are the possible, you know, flight paths? And it, it does have to do like some, probably a bunch of uh, probabilistic stuff where they're determining like, well, there's really nothing for it to go to if it goes in this route, this route, or this route. But then it also can compute like of the available things that are within range of it to uh, fire its thrusters and get there within a reasonable amount of time, or within the amount of time that like the the um, the food and water supplies will last based on the crew complement. Like these are all determinable things because you can only carry so much fuel, so much food, so much water with the number of people that you have on board and get to a certain destination before everybody starves to death or runs out of oxygen or you know yeah. everyone is dehydrated and dies. So it is absolutely able to do all those kind of calculations. You can do it now, like basically just do a whole bunch of uh, uh, physics simulations and, and determining what the orbital pathways are. Uh, it's it's I've, complicated. I've played, Kerbal, I've played Kerbal Space Program. It's so so Kerbal does a, does an amazing job, but it is a simplified physics algorithm. I'm, I'm not going to lie. It does not account for everything. Sorry. Um, but it is the super processing good. power that thing must have has to be insane. Just oh, the CPU yeah. power. Oh, yeah. I can't it even imagine, you know, 300 years into the future, what kind of CPU pro processing they've got. But Processing power just to do that shit on After Effects is just insane <laughs> on its own. Yeah. Well, and I, I do have to say for, for, you know, they don't talk about this too much either in the books or in the show as far as like what the level of computing technology is, whether or not they're using quantum computers, but how they're processing the amount of throughput, because pretty much everything is running on a mesh network everywhere you go. Like mm -hmm. these hand terminals you carry with you, they have your entire identity on them. You can apparently just throw one out, pick up another one and just log into that and have access to everything that you had on your last terminal. So there's no more find my iPhone type of thing. No. <laughs> this seems more like just integrated technology and technology that isn't, that is far away from where we're at, but is what people like Google want to be building. These always online, always interconnected mesh networks that are constantly talking to each other. And nobody here really seems to care. You know, that's one thing that I find kind of interesting is nobody objects to the privacy implications of like living on series where your every moment is tracked, your every ounce of water is tracked, your every breath is tracked, not only because the technology exists, but also because you kind of have to. Yeah. Well, they also, you know, in, in later episodes, they talk about the fact that you know, it's you as a regular person can't just like track people. There are a couple of people who are able to do that, but they're, you know, the elite hacker types. And then also uh, there's an automatic system for tracking your children. Like that's, yeah. that's one of the key elements in the third season. Um, or is it the mm -hmm. second season? Um, either way, the, the point is that like, if you are a parent and you entrust your child with somebody, you are automatically able to track any security camera footage in which your child appears uh, from anywhere in the solar system, frankly, like you can just get access to it. It takes a little bit of time to access it from the network, but you're able to pull it. And it's kind of, it's absolutely fascinating to think of like what you do with like that, just a huge prevalence of data. And like in terms of how it is that you'd be able to access that from, like you said, you just get a hand terminal. Everybody is able to use any hand terminal and it doesn't seem to matter what condition it's in. It's just, does it work or does it not work? Right? Like it doesn't new, new shiny models don't, don't fucking matter at this point. And it just immediately is able to use some kind of like a biometric 
recognition or something and just know it's you and therefore grant you access to all of your files. And then we also see in, um, in this season, we see later that like, if you are granted access to files, your boss who granted them to you can immediately just revoke them like that. And then everything is gone. And, uh, you're, you're kind of out in the cold with nowhere to go. <clears throat> Miller. Um, yeah. but yeah, it, it, it's, it's absolutely fascinating to, to, to ponder what it, what society has, what has changed in society to get us to that point from where we are now. Now, one of the interesting things is when you are in space and you have an Epstein drive engine or really like any engine, you're producing a lot of heat and a lot of light because space is big, dark and pretty cold. So it's mm. easy to see where ships are. Like Very you can cold. see a ship's drive signature from pretty much across the entire solar system, unless it's a Martian stealth tech ship. And this is where we begin to get into some diplomatic drama because the ships that kill the Canterbury have been confirmed to be stealth ships, which only Mars really has that. It's incredibly expensive technology to produce. It's incredibly expensive technology to build and to maintain. And it takes a lot of technical know-how. So it's either Earth or it's Mars that has stealth ships. And Mars has far outstripped Earth in that. And so Avasarala comes across some intelligence that leads you to believe that these stealth engines must have come from Mars. And then she leaks that technology to a diplomat friend of hers, hoping for a reaction where the Martians will have to do some covering up. And instead what happens is the Martians put out a call to all of their stealth ship build yards and say, hey, who's missing engines? Well, it turns out that you only do that if you don't know that your technology was stolen. Like, if we know that that we've sold a dozen stealth drives to, like, Indonesia to attack a Chinese target, we're not going to, like, call the shipyards and be like, yo, where'd those dozen drives go? We'll only do that if we're not aware of the theft of technology, which means that we didn't do that on purpose, and that's exactly what Mars does. Now, unfortunately, that leak of information impugns her diplomat friend. And this leads to a very powerful interpersonal scene, and one that I want to, want to point to, not only because A, Avasarala's fashion game is still on point, but B, yeah. kind of drives at the root of her character, where she is always putting Earth first as the seed of humanity, always making sure that Earth will be the primary hegemon in the system, no matter what happens and no matter the personal cost. So let's, let's tune into this one real quick. And they're on a very lovely um, bayside view in Manhattan where the sea retaining walls are up. The they sell it at the shop on 25th and 8th. You know what I love most about Mars? They still dream. We gave up. They're an entire culture dedicated to a common goal, working together as one to turn a lifeless rock into a garden. We had a garden, and we paved it. They couldn't do any of that without the knowledge of centuries from Earth. Earth must come first. I have no choice about that now. My diplomatic credentials have been revoked. I've been banned from Mars for life. Apparently, I'm an alarmist to cause the MCRN to expose classified stealth technology hubs. Craig called a realtor about 
selling our house this morning. Mm. We may have stopped at war for a while anyway. If you like, we can drink it now. I was looking forward to drinking our wine, watching the sunset over the Mariner Valley. This is a long clip, but I think it's worth the walk. Do you remember, we were very young. Yeah. A couple of us played cards at your house. I remember I didn't like to be excluded. Well, you always lurked on the side, quiet, obedient, but watching. This is so telling, though. Finally, one yes. night, you demanded to play. Well, we had a few. And, uh, you were, I don't know, however old that is. We, we let you in. You didn't take any hands, but you clearly understood the fundamentals. And when the deal came to you, you called your game. Tennessee, three-finger, hold them. Your father took it very seriously. He asked you how to play. You said, we each get five cards. You dealt them out. Then you pointed to the far end of the yard, and you said, now. Whoever gets to the tree first wins. You dropped your cards and were halfway there before anyone else realized what was happening. Never seen your father more proud. See, here's the thing. I was terrified for you. I didn't know why. And now I do. You will do anything to win. Just like your father. That's what got him killed. I won't play with you. Ever again. Oof. Yeah. But this becomes one of the, the driving forces, not just in Officer Allah's life, but in the universe. And as we enter into uh, episode four here, it's something very interesting to keep in mind that we've essentially upped the level of risk here when it comes to mutually assured destruction. That instead of just people on one planet we're talking about people on another planet which almost makes mad seem sensible because if you nuke the earth as we threatened to do during the cold war well no one can survive on the fucking earth we're all dead but if you're surviving on mars and you destroy the planet earth well you've got a whole other fucking planet where you can continue to live and so we see this escalating as the donager begins to enter into a a close quarters battle with unknown enemies. But before that, let's flip back to the belt real quick. And let's look at, as uh, Logan, I think you <laughs> called it, the uh, the natural endpoint of the Twitch stream. So yeah. Go ahead and explain to us what a slingshot club is. So, honestly, Chris, you might be able to explain this one a little bit better. <laughs> as far as, because of the sure. science behind it. Yeah, okay. Well, so basically, the, the whole uh, premise here... Um, when you look at, at, at planning out uh, interplanetary exploration missions at NASA right now, one of the most important factors is how much, uh, how much fuel is it going to take to get you to the location where you're trying to get to and how long is it going to take you to get there. And so if you're willing to take longer, you can spend a lot less fuel using what's referred to as gravitational slingshots. So what they're talking about as a slingshot club uh, for for this this like this betting ring that we're gonna see here in a minute, um, basically the idea is that if you're doing a slingshot 
attempt, you're not firing your engines. So the whole point is that you get yourself on a trajectory and you just go. And then based on how close you get to the planet, the gravitational uh, pull of that planet pulls you in and curves your flight path and allows you to slingshot around the planet to the next location. You actually see this later on in, uh, I believe it's toward the end of the third season, where the, um, or maybe it's the second season. I honestly can't keep track of which ones are which anymore. Um, but you see uh, with the Rasonante, like doing basically a, a series of slingshot maneuvers, not quite slingshot because they're using thrusters, but the idea is that you use the gravitational pull of one body to launch you to another body, then use the pull from that body to launch you to another body. And you're able to then basically zigzag your way around everything and get to the location where you're trying to go. And so with this particular slingshotter club, what they're trying to do is go for the longest, hardest, fastest slingshotting that can go where they're pushing like the absolute limits of what the human physiology is able to withstand. And basically these people are just placing bets on these suicidal maniacs who are out there testing limits of what they can do. And the, the slingshot folks uh, come into play later as well uh, with yeah. the appearance of uh, an extraterrestrial thingamabobber, uh, which we'll but get so, to later. <laughs> so part of it, part of the danger in it is the closer you can get to that planet, the more you can get ca caught partially in yep. its gravity well, but still escape. And also the closer you can kind of skirt the atmosphere means the faster you're going to go to be able to go farther and faster and be more extreme. And so people, unless you get bet too close and then you burn up. <laughs> well, exactly. But people, people bet on this, you know, people yeah. bet on whether or not these people are going to live or they're going to die. But this also gets into the heart of this, like, technology tracking because Miller is looking for a man named Busy Patico. And so he comes in <laughs> looking for this guy whose identity it turns out name. has been stolen by a data broker. And this is the scene that he comes into where everyone's sitting around doing a bunch of drugs, watching a guy slingshotting around the moons of Jupiter and some asteroids out there trying to trying to beat a world record. And talking mad shit while he's doing yeah. it. Yeah, I kind of want to go back just a little bit because it's this this whole scene just like it's a vibe yeah it's absolutely ah. a vibe and i'm 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 here for it it's like opium den gambling house like all of the this... things from like victorian uh lecherous underbelly of society but in space <laughs> yeah this is them at their most noir -y. yeah absolutely so here we go you're not gonna find Love the random hookah. Why are you pencil? <laughs> yeah. Why are you pencil? Why are you pencil? This is his place, right? So yeah, Daddy. Glad to see that hookahs survive. <laughs> I don't know what it is that she's smoking in that thing, but probably not tobacco. like the expanse version of the Moss Eisley Cantina. <laughs> yeah, basically. But everybody's like super mellow. Like super mellow. Also, yeah, holy shit, there's like a dozen fucking hookahs. Oh yeah. They're all over the place. I didn't realize how many hookahs there are. Also, this dude is on something. <laughs> He's vibing. The one in front of the TV? Oh yeah. It's only three million clicks of odd vacuum. Smaller than a mosquito's ass. 
And you, you see that you see the you see the you see the tracking as it's showing what his projected path is going to be if he's able to to hold it together. I love how you say if. And, I, and I'm guessing, Chris, at this point, because of how long it takes for the stream to get to them, he's probably already gone. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> he's already for sure. dead. They're just waiting to find out. Yeah, no, this is definitely on like a twenty-something minute delay. Hey assholes, busy Batico's dead. He ain't dead yet. That busy Batico. Watch the way it's done. This is, this is actually a thing that they didn't really explain in the show is how multiple people have the same identity and do look the same. No, but presumably the, it's like plastic identity, surgery, right? No, the identity broker he just pulled up just uses a, a chip implanted in his body to fake his identity and pick people who look like him. They gotcha. did explain that. Yeah. Oh, okay. Uh oh. It's getting spicy. When when uh when a video feed gets that that white hot so to speak uh probably not a good sign. Future now Twitch streaming y'all. Future but, Twitch streaming. That's Hassan Piker the fifth. <laughs> yeah, what, what I wanted to what I wanted to turn over to you real quick because the question is, why in the belt would this be a predictable pastime? Like why would people embrace? This incredibly deadly form of entertainment and incredibly deadly form of, of um, uh, way of making a money. Like, why is Busy Patico out there in the first place? Well, I mean, the reality is that the, the life expectancy of a belter is about half of everybody else. For them, death is just a normal course of events. Like, you know, like, I, like I've mentioned in the last couple of episodes is that it's very rare to see an old belter. And usually when you see an old belter, they're like revered as unto gods. And so, of course. Uh-oh. Oh, no, we, uh, Logan. No, That's, uh, Logan. Logan. All right. There we go. All right. All right. Oh, there oh, we go. No, no, no. <laughs> but of course the most dangerous shit would be stuff that the belters would love to watch because yeah. that's just what they do yeah well and also like you're like you're saying you your life is already on the line out there you don't have a lot to hope for you know it's almost like the the soviet union when it collapsed and you saw life expectancy just absolutely plummet as people who had kind of given up on the idea of a long life chased whatever fantasy they could yeah, I mean, it's it's get your kicks while you can, because you're probably not going to be here for very long. Yeah. Now, we're going to we're going to stay out here in the belt with you for a second, Logan. Tell us about Fred Johnson and what the hell he's doing with Mormons in space. Mormons in space is just such a delightful <laughs> phrase that I'm going to say quite a bit. But Fred Johnson is kind of the the foreman of uh, construction for the Mormon ship uh, Nauvoo, which is a generation ship that is supposedly going to take them to their promised land planet. 
And not much else is known about Fred Johnson. We obviously he is going to become a very, very large figure in the expanse. But as of right now, all we know is that he is in charge of the construction and he seems to be very, very tight with the OPA, even though he definitely appears to have an inner's uh, aura about him. Yeah. He's definitely an Earther. And Chris, before we before we move on here, I wanted you to talk real quickly about why we need a generation ship to get to Alpha Centauri. Like, what type of distances oh. are we talking about? And what type of mass are we talking about pushing here? All right. Well, thank you for giving me the heads up that you're going to make me do math tonight. Um, this is all you do, as far <laughs> as I know. <laughs> Fair. Fair enough. Um, yeah, so this is, like, we're talking... Um, I think it's something like 120 years of travel under under even with the Epstein drive, um, which they don't really go into what the, the the theoretical acceleration limits are that they're talking about for this. But again, looking back at what we were talking about, I could do the math. I'm not going to because I'm I'm a, I'm, I'm enjoying my beer and I don't want to look stuff up right now. Um, but the distance between uh, solar systems is huge and. Even if you were to travel at 1G, which you really wouldn't want to do uh, for the type of ship that they're talking about here. They actually, the, the Nauvoo, that's one of the beautiful things about this. And I'm, I'm so happy that they included a ship like this. Um, it has what they call a drum uh, with a spin drive. Um, and so basically it allows you to do that whole thing that you see in 2001 Space Odyssey, where you create a slowly revolving uh, body. And then it's the centripetal uh, forces or, or uh, centrifugal, whatever the fuck the term is. It's it's been a long day. I apologize. Yeah. The point is that you gravity create by spinning. Exactly. And so the idea behind this ship is that you would you'd be creating the gravity by spinning. So you wouldn't want to be accelerating at that full speed. Also, you don't you even with even with an Epstein drive, you can't carry a hundred fucking years of fuel with you. So. You're going to accelerate for a bit, and then once you get to where you're going, you're no longer going to continue accelerating at 1G. You're going to, you know, everyone's going to go into 0G, and then you're going to be floating around, and you're just going to cruise at your out at your 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 finished cruising speed, and you just turn on the the, the spin drive, and now suddenly you have uh, 1G uh, effective environmental uh, you know places to live around this entire uh, interior of a drum. And it's super, super cool. So the the math behind this works out to being uh, it takes you longer than a generation where literally like the children who are born on this ship have absolutely no uh, decision making. They have no uh, they, they have no agency whatsoever that has been taken from them by their parents and their grandparents because uh, fuck your free will. You're going to be a Mormon. You're going to colonize this damn planet. Uh, whether you want to or not, uh, which is actually yeah. something that, that that comes up in later uh, later seasons. But yeah. uh, the the whole premise here is that it's it's just it's so far to get using conventional travel mechanisms to go from one solar system to another solar system that literally you cannot make it there in a single lifetime. So that's the whole point behind the Navu is to be able to support a colony's worth of people for more than one generation uh, in space. And it has to be totally self-sustaining um, or at least bring enough stuff with it and not lose anything on the way. Like spaceships leak. Like that's a thing. Like 
that's something that they're constantly worried about with the space station. And there's actually some really fun stories, if you go uh, look into it, of them trying to find where the leaks are at when uh, something comes up. Like, there have been stories of them literally being like the, the you know, the guy, the, the little boy with the uh, in the dike uh, in uh, in the Netherlands where he sticks his thumb in the hole and then uh, is, is hoping that it doesn't break all around him. They've done that on the space station before when they found a hole but, the size of like a small screw. <laughs> but when we're, when we're talking about traveling, you know, more than a century's distance, yeah. the tolerance for failure has to be a lot lower because Very you can't so. send, like you can't call a AAA tow when you're out there in the interstellar medium, when you're, when you're stuck between solar systems, you're out there by yourself. So everything has to be redundant and triple and quadruple redundant. And you also need this gravity in order for some of the plants you want to grow to work, like a lot of plants, the human reproductive system, the ability for your blood to clot, evolved in a gravity well. It's dependent upon gravity for it to keep working. So you have to sort of engineer systems that are going to keep that gravity going and keep that gravity around you for a long time. And so Fred Johnson has been hired to basically wrangle this circus and build the largest habitable vessel that has ever been built by humankind, by the Mormons, so that they can go on their holy pilgrimage out to the next, uh, the next star closest to us, which is millions and billions of miles away. So uh, that being said, like you've thrown up some very good quotes uh, on here about, you know, the OPA only cares about peace. The Latter-day Saints took a took a considerable risk hiring you to build the Nauvoo. This is, you know, trillions of dollars worth of materials and manpower <laughs> being invested into this venture. So it has to work and it has to work right the first time because like if the Nauvoo gets out there and dies, well, nobody's going to know that for a very long, long time. And something that, that Chris, maybe we, this doesn't come up now, but it will come up a little bit later. And something that you're actually currently working on uh, <laughs> side, as it were, is the ability to beam back a message because that's a lot of, uh, it's a lot of distance that has to be covered. And the most, the fastest that you're going to be able to send a message is at the speed of light, like the constant as, as um, you know, Albert Einstein identified, is the quickest that anything is going to be able to travel. So that very powerful laser, in order to, to carry that information back and let us know that the Nauvoo is doing what it's doing correctly, has to be very, very powerful. But it's never going to break those fundamental laws of physics. Yep. So it's fun. Actually, none of these quotes are anything that I've done. I just realized that I could turn on subtitles. I was trying to figure out how to do that. So now we've yeah. got the subtitles. I actually skipped it back a little bit further than where Logan had suggested because I think that there's some fun context here. So let's just go ahead and watch this lovely exchange between uh, Fred Johnson and the Mormon. I'm going to step away for a second and grab some juice. Go for it. That goes spins up asteroids. We don't build ships. Not until now. But trust me, it'll be a ship no one will ever forget. That's not what I meant. I meant you. There have been rumblings that... I do love... You should be replaced as head of operations for the project. I love this. Right here. Yes, you. <laughs> Just Let's the temperature of the room suddenly drops. It's so good. A number of elders Particularly in light of the recent events in the belt. The OPA is only interested in human rights and jobs for all belters. And fomenting riots on Ceres, and inflaming passions in the wake of the cannibal. The history of organized religion isn't exactly strife-free. He's got a point. I've been asked to request a new head of operations. Of course, if that's what you want. 
But I'd be remiss if I didn't remind you that without me, you'd have a very difficult time retaining the most skilled <laughs> builders for your project. I mean, the ones who build for reliability. I do love this kind of subtle threat. Yeah. Subtle. <laughs> on a hundred-year voyage to a new world around a new it's, sun. It's got very much a, no that's a nice ship you got there. It'd be a shame if something were to happen to it. <laughs> no. Absolutely. So, what you have in mind? Because when you eat, when you're eating Mormons to Alpha Centauri, you're only doing a one-way trip. For now, uh, please just continue along as before. Great. They also casted the most Mormon-looking guy. To do on the Navos, yes. Arrays, so I'm gonna need you to get all your people off the ship, and I'll let you know when we're done. Oh, Mormons in space. Yeah. Now, now, Chris, before I um, or while I deal with the the uh, hypoglycemia that that I am dealing with at the moment, yeah. welcome to live podcasting, folks. Where you can almost die because you took just a little bit too much of a of a hormone. Um, but explain to people what a Lagrange point is because Tycho Station is situated at just such a point. Like, there's a reason they put that particular station at that particular distance from these planets. Yep. All right. So uh, a Lagrange point is basically a sp uh, it's there. There are two basically between any two bodies, um, it, you know, with with the exception that there are uh, other bodies that do induce perturbations in this. But basically, it's a stable point in orbit where you are neither you're not approaching either of the two bodies. Uh, and so that's the whole idea here. Like we, we actually have it's one of the places where we like to put. Uh, the the telescopes that NASA makes to go look at the sun is to park those things in Lagrange points where you can then know that it's going to just sit there and stare at the sun. And it is just the right distance from the earth that the earth isn't pulling it toward it. And it's just the right distance from the sun that the sun's not pulling it toward it. So it's just in totally stable orbit. And it requires minimal amount of what is referred to as station keeping. Um, and so station keeping is the, the expenditure of fuel that you need to use to maintain your, your relative position uh, to whatever it is that you are orbiting. In the instance of like the International Space Station, there is a requirement that it be boosted back up into a higher orbit uh, periodically because it's big. It's the size of a football field. And it has these gigantic solar rays that act as wings, which are kind of like really shitty parachutes up in the upper, 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 upper atmosphere because the atmosphere isn't like a layer that like, it's not like the surface of the ocean, right? Where you, you uh, look at it and you go, Oh, I'm above the, the atmosphere. And then I'm, Oh, I'm inside the atmosphere. It's like, there isn't any, any real like transition point. It is a diffuse layer that gets thicker the closer you are. So even when you're up at the altitude that the space station is at, you still do have some atmosphere to deal with. And that atmosphere presents drag, which means that the space station as it's orbiting at 17,000 or whatever miles an hour is encountering a whole bunch of air, even though the air is so spread out, it's just moving so fucking fast that it hits it and it gradually slows it down. It doesn't hit anything like what you would see, for instance, when, uh, you know, when any of the Apollo modules, uh, are coming back into the atmosphere or when like the space shuttle is coming back in the atmosphere everything's glowing red hot and there's like plasma going all over the place like nothing like that but you're still hitting air 
and you're hitting it really fucking hard. It's just that there's so little of it that it slows you down very, very slowly. So at a Lagrange point, you don't have to worry about that because you just like you sit right there and you only have to go a little bit with a little bit of uh, compressed air every once in a while just to make sure that everything stays exactly where you want it. But largely, you can just kind of chill. And that's the whole point, especially with a station like Tycho, uh, where you're going to be, you know, it's a gigantic space station that is doing that whole kind of a spin situation. Not the same as what you would see on um, in, in, in the, the Navub, for instance, but uh, very similar kind of a concept. The, the yeah. whole point is that it's spinning and it's got stuff going, coming and leaving. So that's actually an interesting little physics situation that they don't really go into too much of. Whenever a, a ship leaves, like that's going to change your orbit to a degree, and you have to make account for that because it's it's you're imparting momentum uh, into a ship, and it's imparting some into you. And the fact of the matter is, is that Tycho Station is really big. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's how that all works. <laughs> and so there's even when you're in the vacuum of space where there isn't like atmospheric drag there's still just the mass of one body grinding up against the mass yep. of another so when you have like a comet flying out of the Oort cloud going around the sun for literally millennia it's kind of burning off a little bit of that inertia every time it whips by and eventually it's going to decay into the sun because of the way that those orbits are going to work and you pointed this out the last time where even though there's not you know gravity as it were um in the way that we think of it like you still need – F equals MA is still going to apply. So a Lagrange point is a way to get a body into an orbit and to kind of leave it there in the most stable possible way. Now, we're going to flip over to the exact opposite of this Tycho <laughs> Station Lagrange point. And we're going to look real quick at what close quarters battle is because when you have spaceships – going to fight they have some very cool technology like rail guns where you are basically taking a, a a chunk of tungsten and uh you're accelerating it to a you know not the speed of light but a a relatively um non-trivial amount of the speed of light like 0.001 c is still incredibly fucking fast and if you impart just even a tiny little pebble with that much mass the amount of energy that it has makes it incredibly destructive. So let's watch this close quarters battle scene between Chris, your flagship, the Doniger, and yep. uh, some unknown stealth technology that is apparently hell-bent on uh, getting us into an interstellar war. Yep. Here we go. Get the Mormons off the ship. Oh, and get those that went slightly too far. Sorry. I need a full report now. And here we go. Yep. Shit's not good. <laughs> yeah, so that's the impact of one railgun blast on these smaller ships. That took complete destruction of one of them. And you notice these ships, these stealth ships, almost look like our old uh, F-111s. They have, you know, very oblique angles. They don't have hard angles on them because light is going to reflect. And when it comes down to it, physics is ultimately the decider of the universe. God does not play dice with the universe, as it were. God damn it, let me out of this chair. I don't need to be here. Put me back with my people. Keep him quiet or gag him. I want IDs. We need to know their capabilities. I'm How sorry, much of this sir, do you want to watch? Matching their profile in MCRN or UN records. Isolate each vessel. Detailed imagery and drive I think when they start doing the drive everyone. scans. Yeah, exactly. So what they're doing now is trying to ID these yeah. ships because all of the nuclear reactors in every ship are going to be very, very unique. And you can actually use this in like 
we use this here on Earth where we can determine when a nuclear bomb is made, the radiation that it leaves behind will be a telltale sign of where that uranium or that plutonium was produced, what reactor on the planet produced that particular bit of fizzle material. Now, hold on. This is actually pretty cool. So let's watch what happens when a, a railgun round makes it all the way through the Doniger. Oh, you know, for a badass oh no. Navy boy, you're pretty yeah. Here we go. <laughs> you understand? I was a train for this shit. There's a glorified bus driver, okay? You satisfied? Man, this is not Now they've turned off the man. gravity because they no, need no, all no, of their no, power. No, 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 no. It's the, the engines shut off. Yeah. It's the yeah. engines got hit. Huh? So when the engines got hit, they stopped having the acceleration, okay. so now there's no more gravity. So they're basically adrift right now. Trust me. We're all going to be just fine. bar, and then oops. Now the I Zanny love, bar is uh, no longer there. No, it is not. I, I do love the fact that they, uh, when it, they played the noise of it hitting, and then the acoustics just completely change. Mm -hmm. uh, like, As and all then, the air sucks out of there. Oh. Yep. Oh, Shed. Sorry, Shed. Shed. As does Shed's right. yeah. <laughs> R.I.P. Shed. This is the, the thing about... You know, battles in space is it's not, you know, the Star Wars, Star Trek like ships zooming <laughs> no. in and zooming out and doing like these big shield. swooping shooting lasers at each other. No, 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 no. It's more like the broadsides of old where you're doing a yeah. shit ton of math and you're having to be the person that gets closest quickly to take those shots because this battle is going to be over like that. Once those rail guns start flying, well, things come to an end very, very quickly for a lot of people. And yep. so. This leads to uh, a boarding party getting onto the Doniger, basically invading the Doniger, taking over the Doniger. The crew of the Rocinante being, well, the soon-to-be Rocinante <laughs> being freed through James Holden's ability to negotiate. And the crew getting to what is essentially like a fucking destroyer, like an incredibly powerful vessel. And taking this ship, the Tycho, or not the Tycho, the, um, uh, shit, what's the name of it? Tachi. Tachi. The Tachi taking the Tachi out from this massive bay. But essentially, they get their hands on a very, very powerful uh, uh, naval vessel, essentially like a destroyer in our terms, a fully armed, torpedo-capable ship, and getting basically to have their way with it from here. So let's, let's watch this last little bit where uh, Alex is shoved into the pilot seat of those really badass Corvettes that he always wanted to pilot as an, an MCRN pilot, but never really got to. And then being able to unleash its full destructive capabilities on the Doniger, because the Doniger is about to get scuttled. Yep. All right. I, I finally queued it up because apparently I wrote down the wrong fucking time codes because go figure. Here we go. Oh, I don't think I'm in any Get us out of here! You got it. <laughs> I need some juice. I also need some juice. Yeah, you do. But yours isn't just like pure fucking adrenaline. <laughs> they never explained exactly what the juice is in the show. No, um, but it stops you from stroking it. Yeah. And uh, honestly, I just want to watch this part because it's just, it's just so fun. I love that they're just like, yeah, small arms fire. This is how we're going to take out a fucking gunboat is with 
literally just like the equivalent of an AK-47, which, like, no, <laughs> it's not gonna work. <laughs> you just saw what it took to take out the Dodger. What, you think your little pea shooter's gonna do anything with this? No. And then it crashes it. <laughs> I mean, he did just wake up. They did put Alex under for his own good, so he would breathe. It's true. You got it, Hoss. I mean, yes, sir. Ah, this part is fun. Light up that engine. It would've been nice to see an ocean on Mars. Not bad, as far as like last lines are concerned. Very much has a hunt for Red October. I would have liked to have seen Montana vibe. Oh, yeah. 100%. There we go. And then uh, we'll watch the scuttling as well. Call it a. That'll be the last of the clips. I didn't think we could lose. You're damn right. We can't lose MCRN forever. Not so fucking yeah. tough now, are you, MCR? I mean, kind of. Like, this is kind of extremely badass, just being like, okay, well, we're just gonna take all of you with us. <laughs> but then, Chris, what happens after you blow up that much mass in space, when a nuclear reactor uh, of that magnitude <laughs> goes off? Stuff. Uh, lots of debris. Lots and lots and lots of debris. <laughs> but also a displacement, right? Because there's still, like, some energy that's traveling out from there that has to be diffused. Oh, yeah. Even though it's like a vacuum in space, you know, energy can neither be created nor destroyed. Once that yeah. energy is unleashed, it's got to go somewhere. So that's actually one of those fun things that um, they, if you were to detonate like a nuclear weapon on, for instance, like the surface of the moon, uh, and you were to try to watch it from like a spacecraft, you would very likely just end up destroying yourself because you would be irradiated with so much goddamn uh, radiation uh, that it would just cook you alive. Um, There's a very from, good uh, Kurzagod episode about yes. exactly that. It's very exactly funny. that's that's what I was thinking of. Is like honestly the 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 amount of energy that is present in nuclear weapons is something that they kind of just play very lightly with in this show. I guess the idea being that their their torpedoes are using um, what I guess would be tactical nuclear weapons, which are significantly smaller than what we have used to destroy cities in the past. Um, but this is like no small amount of energy that is present. And when they have their drives go critical like that, when they scuttle the ship, like that's a ton of energy and it's blasting out at an incredibly high velocity. Um, and so it creates a, a, a distortion wave that is not just of, uh, you know, actual like radioactive radiation, but also a bunch of like electromagnetic radiation as well, which will then, you know, impact the way that the sensors work and everything else. And in the instance of the, the Rosinante, as it will be soon called, uh, it, it's it's a shockwave that you're trying to outrun. And even with a drive blasting as hard and as fast as those things are going, which I believe the, the, the Rossi's drive is able to get them to like five or six Gs without any problem, pushing close to seven at sometimes. Um, but that's like, that's the point where you, you do end up having uh, health risks. Um, yeah. But yeah, it, it's pretty incredible. Yeah. And so... At this point, the, the crew has been sent off on this badass Martian warship. They're getting ready to figure out what the fuck they're going to do because, well, quite frankly, they just stole a warship, and um, no one is going to be happy about it that. It was given to them. 
It was given to them. Well, they just don't and, have any and proof the, of and that. And the only people that the only people that can attest to that just blew themselves the fuck up. Yep. So, <laughs> so James Holden and his crew are essentially fugitives, not just from Earth but from Mars. Uh, let's go around the horn real quick and talk about where we're all sitting at the end of this episode. So I'll start off with Earth, and Avasarala is getting kind of scared here. Somebody is obviously trying to start a war. She has this rogue Earther who flew off to the belt, who may have ill intentions towards the planet, who is now in possession of a warship that is far more capable than almost anything that the earth has the earth's un navy is is very old and aged like they definitely have the most ships but that doesn't mean that they have the best ships and avasarala is trying to figure out what she can do to put out the fire before it turns into a full conflagration uh what is mars up to chris how are they sitting at the end of this episode uh mars is very confused uh we just lost the uh the pride of the martian navy uh, we don't know what the fuck just happened. Uh, we know that James Holden is a problem. Uh, we know that he is spreading lies about the things that we are doing and uh, that we must capture him at all costs. Uh, we don't know about the Tachi surviving the Doniger uh, destruction. We just know that the Doniger blew itself up and that, that that's all there was to it. So uh, we're very much operating in, in a, uh, a void of no information at this point and uh not happy about it yeah and logan what's happening with the belt the belt's fucking pissed off man because with the latest holden banger all they know is that the canterbury is dead and mars did it and they are very fucking pissed because that uh, endangers their water supply which is literally keeping them alive because when that supply is disrupted people die immediately and so through that, the OPA is actually gaining in power because they are engaging in mutual aid. And they're, and Anderson Dawes is one of the only people who's actually keeping the, the belt together right now with all of this strife and with the knowledge that two superpowers are about ready to go to war for reasons they do not understand. And that's just kind of where they are, where the OPA is just looking at, you know, uh, hey, Shit's going down, but we have an opportunity here to actually wrest some control away, you know, from these two dogs fighting each other. So that's, you know, kind of where they are. They're very much uh, a work in progress. And for reasons unknown, Fred Johnson's got some plans with those Mormons. Yeah, yep. this is, we're, we're in kind of like a Cuban Missile Crisis, only like way worse at this point, because... Uh, it's going to go from not just being like, you know, uh, people shouting at each other on the floor of the United Nations, like it's going to escalate and we're going to see how all of that shakes out. And we're going to see in the next couple of episodes, uh, episode five, Back to the Butcher and episode six, Rock Bottom, where they where the, the crew is going to flee at this point and how they're going to start keeping uh, an eye on each other. Because remember, these were like work colleagues. Like, imagine if you were just shuffling around the cubicle and then like two random people from different departments got thrown into your car and you all had to figure out how to survive together. Three random people got thrown into your car and you all had to survive how to... together and uh, on the run from the cops on the run from the the mobsters on the run from a different set of cops it's all crazy crazy (laughs) shit out in the vacuum of space uh so we're gonna be back next week uh probably gonna try for seven we might end up at eight uh and then the podcast is gonna be up saturday morning as always uh thank you all very much for tuning in hopefully uh y'all enjoyed it uh and i'm getting really really excited because this is where uh where the the rubber really begins to hit the road and we begin to get into the bigger 
overarching storyline. So we will see you all next week. Chris, Logan, thank you all very much for joining us tonight. Thank you. Thank you. See you next week. Yeah. See you, see you Space Cowboy, as it were. <laughs> oh, come on. Oh, God, that's that a good tonight. show. Everybody needs to watch that show. <laughs> Holy shit, night. it's so good. <laughs> I guess I know what we're all doing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm down for that vibe. It's been a stressful week. <laughs> Cowboy Bebop. Woo! Everybody should right. watch it. If, honestly, if you haven't anime, watched it, watch it. Yeah, it's it's good. Thank you much. Co-sign that one. See you next week. Bye. See you, friends. <laughs>